You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Now it's time for my biannual reminder to put your brain in a bucket. A climbing helmet, that is. All the old reasons to not wear a helmet, even sport climbing, are gone. Too heavy? Not much heavier than that summertime wool beanie, bro. Too hot? Well, the thought of brain surgery should really make you sweat. Too lame? You're lame. You're lame. You're lame. As I've grown older, I've heard of too many injuries that could have been prevented with a helmet. Of course, Black Diamond can help you out. From the high-end and lightweight vision helmet to the burly old-school half-dome, Black Diamond has a full line of helmets at all weights, protection levels, and price points to outfit you for the mountains, cragging, and dare I say bouldering, you maverick? Why wait to get a new, cooler, better helmet? I mean, it's just your brain, right? Wrong. Wrong. Go to Black Diamond Equipment to check out their high-tech helmets, and I'd love you to support BD, who supports this free podcast you're listening to right now. But if nothing trips your fancy from Black Diamond... Go somewhere else and find a helmet you can wear proudly, even on that 510 warm-up you've done a thousand times. Buy it. Wear it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Well, howdy, Chris. What brings you out to the old fishing hole? You know, I just wanted to say that when Yeti asked me to advertise for their Yonder water bottle, I was a little skeptical. You know, like what the heck am I going to say to get folks excited about a water bottle? Yep, could be dull as ditch water. And yet he has all those other great products, like awesome coolers, the stainless drinkware, and heck, he even got that bucket thing. Yeah, the bucket. But anyway, then I started using my own Yeti Yonder water bottle, and well, that cap you have that can open the fill hole and or the drink hole, it's pretty genius. The other day, I dropped ice and drink mix in the big hole, shook it up, and then I could easily drink out of the small hole without sloshing everything down my chin. No drinking problem here. You're lighter than stainless steel. I have been working out. And BPA-free. I don't know what that means. And you have a clippable handle just right for climbers. Anyway, I'm sorry I thought you were some boring old water bottle yonder. You really are a better bottle. People take water for granted all the time. Right up until they ain't got none. And their mouth's drier than a dead dingo's ukulele. Well... Anybody you want can ogle my sweet curves at Yeti.com or any fine outdoor establishment. Oh, fish on, brother. Reel it in easy, yonder. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, you playing here? We're doing the, uh, the Normo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place that side of town. That's a big nice. place. You sold it's it out. Out. I'll see. You really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed climbing with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather. Bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, La Sportiva, and with support from Maxim Ropes. Maxim has been keeping the normal cast off the deck since 2012. And now, we can also thank the chill folks at Yeti. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and entry Normo at checkout to get a great deal on great coffee and to support the Normocast. And now back to the show. <laughs> Thank you.
Hello and welcome to the Enormacast. This is your host, Chris Calouse. It is November 12th, 2023, about 2.30 in the afternoon here in Colorado. And this is episode 270 of the Enormacast, a conversation with climber, mother, indigenous environmental activist, among many other things, Brianna Mazzolini Blanchard, Dirtbag Mama on Instagram. It's funny, we've come to a time when a lot of people aren't even recognized mostly by their name, but by their Instagram handle. Maybe you follow her. She's a Cincinnati climber. She's on the Red River Gorge Climbing Coalition. She has spearheaded some of their outreach into underserved communities. She's also the executive director of the Urban Native Collective, which we talk about in here, an organization in Cincinnati area doing outreach and support for indigenous communities. She also runs a podcast. She's a fellow podcaster. So yeah, she does a lot. And we talk about it all in this podcast. It's an interesting kind of reflection in parts of it on 2020, on the BLM protests, on the reckoning with not just indigenous climbers, with climbers of color, with gay climbers, with trans climbers, with all the climbers. We kind of reflect on that year, what that did to our landscape, um, and you know what's been going on since. So look forward to that conversation in a minute. But now, I want to pause to give a sad and heartfelt tribute to Aaron Livingston, a former guest on the Enormacast and someone I considered a friend. Aaron died in a soloing accident on Donner Summit earlier this month. Our interaction began on another tragic day when his friend Nolan Smith was killed on El Gigante in Mexico, and I was consulted about logistics around getting to the base of the wall and performing a rescue for Aaron who was left stranded, without a partner, and with his rope cut short. I could only offer little actual help. But after those trying days in Mexico, Aaron trusted the Enormacast enough to tell a story of losing his best friend, a brother really, that terrible day. And in doing that interview, I found out that he and Nolan devoured the Enormacast as young climbers. And hell, that thought makes me proud and choke up in equal degrees. Well, not exactly a dirtbag, Aaron ran it. Well, not exactly a dirtbag, Aaron ran in many different communities under several guises, ice climber, free climber, adventure climber, and guide. And based on the tributes that have poured out of the likes of Instagram, he was friends with many and loved by many and would be missed by many. He was a fun-loving dude, excellent climber, but he also carried that trauma of seeing his friend plummet before his eyes. No matter what you believe, there is an end to that trauma and death for Aaron. And maybe we can wistfully hope that they are mingled together again in the universe. For me, I'm glad we had that moment together. When we did that interview, we became friends. And I'll continue to read the beautiful tributes with a lump in my throat, but oddly, or maybe naturally, a slight smile. Because the tributes are filled with love, sometimes humor, and are mostly accompanied by photos of Aaron having yet another best day ever, climbing rad shit, sometimes laughing with arms around friends, and living fully the way climbers do. Aaron Livingston is loved, and he will be missed. Okay. Sorry if that hit you out of left field. We're supposed to just have fun on this damn podcast. All right, why don't we get to the fun? listen to an interview with my guest, Brianna Mazzolini Blanchard. But first, 
a message from your toes. Hey guys, it's me again. That's right, your toes. And I'll tell you, if there's one thing us toes hate more than ice climbing, it's crack climbing. So if you gotta do it, and I know you gotta, then Sportiva has some cool choices for you to climb hard and still give us toes a smooth ride. Of course, the venerable TC Pro. Can't be beat on those bigger crack sizes and multi-pitch trad. But what about the thin stuff? Well, and I don't even think Sportiva knows this. The Kubo. That's right, I said it. The Kubo is Sportiva's ultra-comfortable all-arounder, but it also happens to be a thin, crack, ultra-tech super shoe. More support than a slipper, but just enough rubber in all the right places to get in and get on with the type of jamming you need on the thin stuff. Don't believe me? Then buy the Kubo for its edging, smearing, and comfort that's like a hug from a warm, fuzzy puppy. You know, if a puppy had arms and it wasn't one of them stupid ones that eats poop. And then give them a fling on your thin crack project. You'll come around to the Kubo, or my name isn't... A what? Oh, <laughs> we're late for our pedicure. Okay, I gotta go. But check out the Kubo and all the other great shoes at Sportiva.com or your local shop. And of course, tell them your toes sent you. I guess I'll open with having you explain to us what the Urban Native Collective is. Cool. Um, so the Urban Native Collective, uh, which is here in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I live, is a nonprofit collective that exists to serve the indigenous population here in this region. So, you know, the southern Ohio region, the eastern Indiana region, northern Kentucky region. You know, we have three different pillars, uh, advocacy, education and support. This organization, I'm the executive director of this organization, just transitioned into this role back in April. But uh, we're the only org doing what we do here, which is pretty awesome. There are high numbers of indigenous people here in Cincinnati as it's like ground zero for colonization. A lot of things happened here in Ohio back in the 1800s in regards to, you know, treaties and all that. So it's a hot spot. And uh, there are just a ton of urban natives here and we're here to serve them. You know, as people know, we'll get to the climbing eventually. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as you talk about supporting uh, indigenous people, on native yeah. people. What does that mean? I mean, what, when are you talking about what this does for support? I think support's kind of subjective, but like how, how we look at it is first we want to kind of get a gauge for like what the needs of, of the community are for, whether that's through past partnerships, past collaboration and past community members being involved. And so that might look like through our urban garden project that we have providing them with nutritious food because that was all like taken from the native community and like we were given scraps and like sugar and flour and shit to cook with. And so, you know, one aspect of support might look like being able to feed the 30 families that we've been able to feed since we started this project, this food sovereignty project in May uh, in collaboration with another nonprofit farm here in Cincinnati. Uh, you know, support might look like just creating a community space where like urban natives from all different areas, different tribes, different nations, those unaffiliated with tribal nations, those unenrolled, disenrolled, whatever they might be, can collectively gather together in the space that's no one's, you know, it's someone's homeland, but it's like not where a lot of us are from. And so, you know, we can collectively support one another. And that might look like having conversation, providing programming, um, you know, 
providing a podcast where we're talking about issues that urban natives uh, experience and you know we're not talking about having a podcast and all these issues being around like what is the history of you know indigenous people in ohio like like we're talking about real issues that we as native people face today and that might be like marginalization in the workplace or you know how uh different things that are happening with our climate for instance wildfires like are impacting our communities you know native identity and just a slew of other topics that we're going to cover on our podcast that we have um so like those are just you know some ways in which we're currently proactively uh supporting our community uh but you know like i said we're 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 newer you know we've just went through this transition into the urban native collective from the greater cincinnati native american coalition and so we're building a lot of new programs and trying to assess the needs of the community it might eventually look like health and wellness programs like we have a climbing gym right next door and so that's really awesome because i'm trying to like develop some new relationships with my organization because of like legacy partnerships i've had with them in other ways so uh you know maybe we'll build a a wellness program that incorporates climbing and fitness uh that's you know other ways in which we can support our community so kind of just hopefully able to offer just a lot of of things for our community yeah i mean it's uh it's fascinating because you know, the urban part of it is something that I wasn't, hadn't, hadn't really thought about. I mean, we have, you know, we're, I'm near the four corners. We have this tribal land here, um, you know, several tribes that share it, or at least a couple. Right. And, uh, but you know, it's, it's much more, I mean, it's as rural as it gets down there. And so like our sort of interface in Western Colorado, you know, Southeast Utah, which is where I climb a lot too, has, has to do with interfacing with these very rural, Mm -hmm. you know, rural tribes and rural you know, areas. So yeah, when I started reading about this and, and I've been listening to your podcast, I, I was kind of just trying to run those things around in my head about the urban yeah. quality of it um, as something that I hadn't I mean, really thought yeah. too much about. Yeah. I mean, you think that like the history of our country and, you know, the displacement, the the land that was stolen from urban natives and we end up all over the place and we end up in like all these metropolitan areas, especially over here in the, in the Northeast or, or even the Southeast. And the history over here is so old, right? Like you're, you're talking about living in a place where tribal nations still in some ways like have reservations and have establishments and things like that. You know, we don't have that here. There is not a single reservation in Ohio and not a single federally recognized tribe in Ohio. And so We've got these like three huge metropolitan areas, you know, Cincinnati, Columbus, and and um, and Cleveland, and like zero tribal representation. And so it's difficult to kind of comprehend that when you're coming at it from like a perspective like yours of interfacing with, you know, maybe tribal leaders are seeing that a lot more and understanding that whether you're living in the Four Corners or Wyoming or somewhere else that has has reservations, uh, trying to like comprehend what it means to be an urban native, but we exist and we're trying to like break the stigma and stereotype of like what it means to be a native person, what it means to be indigenous, uh, still like holding true to our traditions and our uh, ancestors and our history and all of these things that are really important to us, but we exist as everyone else is in these urban places. And so, you know, uh, that's where we exist to serve. You know, I want, I just wanted to mention, I, I was going to mention it earlier, but um, I have some Cincinnati roots. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think I heard on a previous podcast yeah, yeah. that you're from the Midwest. I was well, like, I wonder where. Well, I actually lived in uh, Loveland, Ohio. Um, oh, God. Okay. Yeah, for um, from like preschool age or even pre-preschool age to third grade. 
So yeah, and and um, you know, on a previous podcast, um, I have this connection that I I lived literally like just about a mile from where um Chris Hampton um his grandmother lived, and so I visited him there, and you know, I was like, holy cow, this is like right where I used to live when I was like this little kid. Um, but again, I mean, growing up in that you know I, you know what do you remember from third grade and you don't sure you're not really privy to uh like social issues um per se um but yeah i mean it, it never really would have occurred to me this idea of like this tribal nature of the area but of course as an adult i realized that it was all like you said it was all land that was uh populated before colonization happened um but it's just yeah. interesting to have no perspective on it even having right. lived there so it's, I, you know, it was just kind of like, that's one of the reasons I, I was interested in talking to you was, again, this angle that we don't have here in the West as much. I mean, it exists. Obviously, uh, all our cities have Native people in them. But what we see and what I interact with personally is all rural. So um, it's pretty mm-hmm. fascinating. What's your, I mean, what's your uh, connection in terms of, you know, if you, if you want to state your tribe, I'm not, I'm not sure mm-hmm. if you have a specific tribal connection. Um, I realize that your name um, has at least uh, some European influence. Yeah, I would guess. yeah, yeah. Um, so my dad, yeah. my dad is Sicilian. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Mazzolini. Uh, so my dad's a a full blood Sicilian. If you want to use that phrase, I guess. Um, yeah, my dad's Sicilian. My mom is native. Um, so my family is from Guam, which is a, a U.S. territory, um, and so. My family it doesn't trace our ancestry back to Turtle Island or or this continent, but a U.S. territory. Yeah. So my mother, her family, they all grew up on the island of Guam and and came here uh, after World War II. Uh, my clan name is Tugong, which means to charge, which I think is really awesome because it has this sort of like I don't know warrior feel or like really powerful feel behind it. That's kind of really um, like drives a lot of my ambition and I think my perspective uh, on how I approach things and approach the world or like approach climbing or approach whatever it is that I get myself into. And so, you know, I take that with me and carry that wherever I go. And um, my partner uh, has some indigenous roots as well. And so I'm really lucky to to have that be such a huge part of our of our life, especially as we raise a raise a seven year old. Where did you grow up then? Um, I grew up in Cleveland. Okay, so you're Ohio. Uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've lived in lived in Ohio my whole life. Grew up in Cleveland. Moved down to Cincinnati when I uh, graduated high school to go to school. Okay, so I mean, I you know I just mentioned how a third grader when I was there you know has no eye on any of this. What about you? I mean, it it if you were growing up in a city, you've got these parents, two different backgrounds from your parents. Again, I I mean, I don't have a lot of memory of my parents wanting to talk about, you know, their ancestry or anything else when I was a kid. What mm-hmm. was your sort of path to this kind of work identifying? Was it something that that you know was in your family? Was it something that you found later? Um how did yeah. you arrive here at sure. this work? Yeah, I think that's a kind of like a long, long story a little bit. All right. I mean I grew up I grew up time. in Yeah. So <laughs> what podcasts are um, for long stories. Right, right. We can just talk forever until <laughs> my computer dies. Yeah. Um <laughs> Well that's right. We have we do uh, have a, we do have a disconnect point. No, if this podcast no. just ends, that's that's what happened. <laughs> now you know why. Right. <laughs> um yeah, I grew up. So I guess maybe to put it in some context, the native people of Guam have a really complex relationship with uh, America. And the people of Guam are the native Chamorros. So I am Chamorro. And um, 
during World War II, or prior to World War II, I should say, the U.S. had occupancy of Guam, but left before the Japanese invaded Guam. And so they, they left with all of the white women and children and all of the white soldiers. They left and they left all the Chamorro people on the island of Guam to to die. And then then Guam was uh, was taken over by the Japanese imperialists and the people like my grandmother and others were put in these internment camps. And then, you know, when the U.S. decided we're going to take back Guam on what they celebrate as Liberation Day, ironically, was when, uh, you know, the U.S. came back to Guam, freed the people from the Japanese imperialists and the Chamorro people are now just these shining patriots of like gratefulness. And and so understanding that my grandmother was someone in one of these Japanese internment camps and then being freed by the U.S. embedded like this huge sense of patriotism to the U.S. and America. And so my indigeneity is very complex and like wrapped up in you know being a native person, but being raised in a family of folks who were in the military. My grandfather adopted all of my grandmother's children and he was a white man and he was in the military. And so there's this really deep seated, just normal Americanism, Western like identity that I had growing up, even though I was like really tied to my native roots and like I danced and I, you know, went to like various ceremonies and I was I, I took part in a lot of like what culturally, like traditionally, whatever was available to me. Um, and I was, you know, closely tied with my family and all that. But uh, at the end of the day, like my family had this like strong patriotism to America. So I grew up like pretty American, you know, uh, but understanding too, like my culture and my roots. So it's really complex and complicated. And I think a lot of native people would be like, yeah, I have like this really complicated upbringing too. That's really kind of fucked up. And like, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, I went to a normal public school and did the whole like I was just, just this brown girl with black hair and navigating life like that. And thankfully, I, uh, you know, went to a public school where I saw a lot of people that looked like me and I didn't feel particularly out of place. So I was kind of like ashamed of my indigeneity and like my roots and my heritage for whatever reason. Um you know, well, I've I mean, never it, really it, tackled it, that part well, of my trauma. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's I don't think it's unusual to to be at that those ages and just want to fit in and and not yeah, and yeah, not be special. Sure. And and it's funny because um, I'm sure you take a ton of pride in in these things now, and mm-hmm. they make you yeah. they make you special. They 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 you know they give you this identity, but that's like the worst thing when you're a middle schooler, yeah. teenager of being different. And so, yeah, I can, I can see, you know, at that time, not wanting to parade it around necessarily. That's just, I, you know, I taught high school. I saw kids stuff themselves into their own little boxes, um, you know, and hide out from, from any sort of ridicule. So, um, it's understandable, but what, what happened to, um, like I said, what, what happened to, you know, sort of, I mean, you've, you've embraced it full on, you know, what what was it? Taegong? Is that, the, the Tugong. Tugong. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you went, yeah. you charged it, if, if you will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, just navigating adulthood as it is, um, I experienced a lot of trauma with like my native mother. And so, like, that was really hard to like grapple with understanding my own identity while, you know, experiencing abuse or whatever else 
you know, from the person who literally gave me my native and indigenous identity. And so I'm pretty open about this. So it's not like weird to talk about. But like back in 2018, I ceased having a relationship with her. And so that was like a pretty pivotal moment in my life where I um, had to and got to figure out who I was as an indigenous person on my own, which like was really scary and really hard because I still carried this like trauma of like, this is the person that gave me this identity that I want to embrace, but she sucks and like has caused so many problems for me and like not to like make light of it. I feel like I'd like have to at this point, but you know, I got the opportunity to navigate my journey on my own and it has opened me up to just connecting with so many relatives who I hadn't connected with before and just growing deeper in my own culture and identity and, um, you know, getting closer with like my aunties and other relatives that I have to really understand who I am and understand who I am as an indigenous person. It's complex as native people navigate not being indigenous enough or, 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 you know, not being enrolled or disenrolled or not being able to have any sort of tribal affiliation because we can't or, you know, all these complexities. And so it's just like all the layers of what it means to be indigenous. But but for me, you know, feeling empowered again as a person, having like let go and distancing myself, removing myself from that person that caused so much pain for me, allowed me to really step into who I am as a person and embrace and finally learn like who I am um, and empower me to be this like leader and change maker and indigenous environmental activist that I, you know, feel like I am. And, you know, I also have a background in like community service and community and social service and things. So, you know, the community is always at the top of my mind when I'm thinking about it. And for me, having the opportunity to serve my community in Cincinnati, the indigenous community in Cincinnati is like, you know, checks all the all the boxes for me because I, I love this place and I love being able to like serve the community in whatever aspect that looks like. So what what about um let's let's go there because uh you know yeah. the climbing podcast. So what about climbing? At what point did that come into your life and and you know it's it's is you know you're a dirtbag mama on on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it is a part of your identity as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, or else, you know, I probably wouldn't wouldn't have noticed what you were up to. Um, so tell me a little bit about that, and um, maybe fit that into into sure. sort of the journey because I'm I'm just sort of curious again about this transition to who you are sure. from from someone. And you know, listening to your podcast, you know, I listened. I think three episodes. There's there's five. I think posted. So. Um, yeah. it's a pretty solid part of your canon, um, that I got, I digested, but, um, you know, as a host, you're not really talking about yourself, but I, I kept hearing these hints about, you know, what we just talked about, um, that your journey to sort of embracing, you know, your indigenous culture was not just, you know, perfect. So, um, what right, about climbing? Right. Like where did climbing fit into it? People are complex, right? Like we, you know, we're, we're ever changing. And I think it's okay that we like are not the same person that we were like 10 years ago, or we've changed. And, you know, sometimes I'll run into like, oh, well, you know, you've changed a lot in the last or like, why now? You know, why now are you embracing this piece of you? And that's complex, right? There's so many like variables that go into play of like why we choose to present the person today. And so, you know, 
it's funny you mentioned my Instagram handle because like, you know, it's just like a name. And, Have you been and, thinking you know, about changing it? Is that I mean, you're like, I don't think I can at this point. Like people are like, I'll go out to Utah. to be like, are you dirtbag mama? I'm like, fuck, I can't change I it now. Am, yeah. <laughs> it's like um, Trad Princess has the same problem. She, yeah, she's right, not exactly right. in love with her Instagram anymore, name anymore, because yeah. it was kind of a joke, but... Um, right right exactly but it's her brand you know like (laughs) right like for me you know i found climbing okay so you know back when the cleveland rock gym still existed like my sister dragged me in there one time back in like i don't know 10 years ago or something like that i tried it out but like my uh climbing experience was pretty complex because i never really like you know it was just a hobby for me it wasn't really anything that i um I don't know, spent time investing in my partner, however, like loved it and would drag my ass into the climbing gym like all the time. And so, um, you know, because of that over the years, um, after I had our son, I remember stepping into the gym again, just like kind of getting back into it. And, um, you know, this was like, I don't know, 2018 or something like that. And, and before that really just dabbling and climbing, I wouldn't really have identified as a climber before that, but you know, I got on like a V4 and I did some moves and I was like, damn, maybe I can do this. And that really propelled me into like investing into climbing and like starting to really see myself as, or see this as something I could do because it never really been a sport that I'd seriously considered before a lot of things go into play you know I had uh just birthed a child not that long ago so I felt like Good I job. could do anything yeah sure <laughs> thank you you brought thank life you. forth from your loins um, I mean yeah what else is there you know <laughs> yeah so you know I felt like it's just like when you think about like like becoming this person post this trauma that I'd experienced I was like you know, there are all these layers to like figuring out how I can be a more confident person because, you know, before that I'm like, I would not have considered myself a a person that was confident or a person who would like enter into spaces where I was uncomfortable or whatever, you know? So for me, like post 2018 was like a, a, just like a realization and a discovery of like who Brianna is as a person. And that meant like really diving into the climbing community, which was like the main driver behind why I kept going back and why I kept doing it. You know, Chris Hampton talks about like his OG home gym being climb time blue ash. And like, that's where I found climbing community, um, on, in a dirty ass 30 year old climbing gym. People joke. They're like, I need an inhaler after I leave this place. Like that's that gym. <laughs> and, um, you know, where, where I found community that was there for me that was supportive and I think when you like experience the climbing community for the first time you like are like shiny bright-eyed like you're like this is wonderful and then of course like the longer you get to know something you're like well maybe like some shit's fucked up within the climbing community and like you know you start to like unravel and, and deconstruct a lot of things as as we do as humans like as we navigate various spaces but you know I always had been so passionate about community wherever I found that. And so I just, we just dove head first and, you know, through that just like fell in love with climbing and my family, we'd always be at the gym and, you know, the, the more we were there, the stronger I got. And it kind of just like the story kind of tells itself in regards to like my progression as a climber and just where I found myself. So you mentioned removing yourself from a relationship with your, with your mother, um, Mm -hmm. your indigenous mother. 2018. And then you also happen to mention climbing in 2018. And so uh, I made sort of a connection there. 
I mean, let me let me back up just a tiny bit. Like, I mean, how old were you in 2018 when when these decisions, you know, impacted you? Yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, or about. I mean, it, you know. Yeah, 2018. I'm not gonna uh, check your I, math. No, you're good. I was 28. <laughs> you know what? What were uh, what were the decisions around? You know, this time, this moment. You know, what was going on in your life that pushed you forward in this way? Because I mean. It sounds like it was a pretty pivotal year or so. So not only was I trying to like navigate this relationship Mm -hmm. that I'd had my whole life that, you know, not a positive relationship at that with my parent who held all connection and ties to my indigeneity, um, an identity that I hadn't, you know, I understood and embraced in some aspects, but was still like weirdly ashamed of in others because I was a kid that wanted to like fit in and be white sure <laughs> so i mean it's, i mean there's a real aspect of that the, too i mean that's yeah. the pressure right and, and it always has been um yeah and and you have to sort of i don't know like find your way through it because it's kind of it feels like it's kind of constant i would imagine yeah yeah and so you know 2018 i had an almost two-year-old at that point oh, like right. I was so disconnecting. You, so your yeah. son was born at that time okay yeah you know just all the things yeah, happening sure. at that point yeah <laughs> and so like had a kid and um was disconnecting from a relative and you know the really pivotal thing for me that i remember back in 2018 that honestly propelled me into climbing was that um my husband was working for a a company that we were like all in right like as all in as you want as you possibly could be and like we were considering like even an opportunity to like buy into the company and become owners and then um under some really unfortunate circumstances they let him go and like our what felt like our complete like whole world was was falling apart and so you know i remember that night I left work and we went to the gym, Climb Time Blue Ash. And I remember sitting there talking with Patty Law, who owns Climb Time Blue Ash, and uh, telling her about what happened. And, and she was like, you know, I know this is like really hard for you. And right now you feel like people don't care about you, that you loved a lot, but we love you and we care about you and we want you here. And she like offered my husband a part-time job. And it was like everything that we needed in that moment to be like, damn, this is like what it's about. Right. Like we just had our whole world fall apart. Cause like a job, losing a job is like, I mean, they say it's like up there with like getting a divorce, like possibly losing a loved one. And so, you know, it was this huge thing for us and we had an barely an infant, like he was like, you know, and, and so this was just this huge moment for us and for the climbing community that I truly love so much to just be there for us in that moment, you know, th- I mean, that was it. That was like the moment where I was like, this is where I belong. This is where I should be. This is the community I should invest in. And like through the years, you know, it's had its ups and downs and I've invested in various aspects of that community. People have shown their true colors and I'm like, man, you know, I really liked you then, but like, I re- <laughs> we really have issues now. Um, well, people are and, people. and, you know, 2020 came along and, you know, I, 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 I was, I joined the board of directors for the red river gorge climbers coalition at the end of 2019. And in 2020, all of this was happening with, with all of this, uh, this black lives matter work kind of coming to forward facing again and on all of these things that were happening then. And, um, you know, we as a coalition were also experiencing a lot of pressure in that regard because, you know, 
various orgs and businesses had like released these statements and people were trying to figure out how to navigate what to say and do around these these murders and the things that were happening to black people and brown people in our community. You know, the coalition, the Red River Gorge Commerce Coalition, they're like, well, we need someone to kind of like figure this out for us and help us with this and like maybe chair a committee where we, you know, handle how to navigate this moving forward because this, these are important people in our community and we need to do better and we need to do differently. And I've been chairing that community since it's, or I'm sorry, chairing that committee since its inception, you know, almost four years ago. And, you know, I joined the coalition because I had experience in nonprofit and education, but, you know, three months later, like, I stepped up and had to step up and wanted to step up as like the only brown woman in our you know group at the time on our team at the time and and step into that role and I willingly wanted to step into that role as like a an indigenous brown female leading these like very complicated very controversial causes within an org that is historically white has historically served mostly white people and is in eastern freaking Kentucky. So like, you know, um that that's like that's like the it. That's like the start where it kind of like all began for me of like these moments of like what brought me into climbing and the community being there for me and like these transitions that happened through the course of like my and I still serve on the board of directors for the coalition, but like the beginning stages of that and uh this pivot that I made with sort of what I had anticipated doing with the, with that group of people. And then everything's just really kind of grown from there. Well, what, what did you anticipate? I mean, it seems like if you, if you got on the, the coalition board at, in 2019, um, even though you sort of dabbled in climbing um, up to, up to, to that point that, that, you know, seemed pretty early in, you know, whatever you want to call it, if it's a climbing career or your climbing sure, path, sure. you know, you, you expect like the coalition people to be like the old dudes that have been, <laughs> you know, there for 30 years, blah, blah, yeah. blah, been through it all. So, um, you know, when you said it, it changed really quickly. Like what, when you were, you were asked to, to, to be on part of this committee that was addressing these issues. And it's almost like, it's, it's, it's interesting to, I mean, we're in 2023 now and, it's it's like starting to fade like how intense and volatile that year and that summer was not just i mean obviously in the nate we had covid and and you know the protests around uh george floyd and it, it yeah it was super intense and it it almost feels like it it was this national thing but it it spilled into every aspect of our lives and therefore it spilled into climbing so i mean what did that look like i mean I, I, it's like, I have this vision in my head, like all these old white guys, like coming to you, like, what do we do, Brianna? (laughs) Like, you have to help us. Like, we, we don't know. know. Do we post the black square or do we not post the black square? Like, what do we do? (laughs) You You laugh, but it's like, yeah, I mean. Right. Each person comes to the table with their own level of like knowledge and expertise. And for the rest of the team, like this was like a learning experience. They're like, what what do we do? And, you know, when I joined the board in 2019, I was so because I live in Cincinnati and like half the board is in Cincinnati. I knew a lot of people already. And um, I had this expertise in nonprofit, which no one else had, as well as like an education background. And so those were some holes I was able to fill in regards to like what they were, 
you know, seeking out and I knew some folks and all that. So it played out really well. And I thought, you know, these were things I could bring to the table. I wanted to really get involved with the community, the climbing community, especially the outdoor climbing community. And then, you know, insert 2020 and uh, everything that's happening with Ahmaud Arbery, especially because that happened in Georgia. And like, I was really close and am really close with the prior executive director of the SCC. And so we're like on the phone chatting about like, what are they doing? What are we trying to figure out? And, um, and because it's happening in like the hometowns of where some of these local climbing organizations exist. Well, wait, what? So, wait, wait, to, to explain that. Sorry. Yeah, no, like, um, so, you know, the Southeastern Climbers Coalition, mm-hmm. they're located in like Georgia, Tennessee okay. and what Alabama. And so this black man is shot while running oh, sure. and, and oh, you know, right. sure, in, sure. in one of the states okay. that the SCC operates. And of so course. they're trying to figure out what to do in their own backyard. And we're trying to like figure out, you know, and so you kind of get this picture of like how it all bleeds into like sure. climbing and how it bleeds into like all these various aspects of life that aren't just you know, protests. Well, it's interesting like because it's like, you know, I think traditionally, and, and I mean, I think the tendency may be still there to be like, well, that's, that's something else. Like climbing is this refuge from all that shit. Like let's, let's not, you know, let's, you, this is not political. We're just climbers and everything else. And I think one of the things that that did or 2020 did finally, I guess, was force the issue of being like, look, mm-hmm we can't just stick our little climber heads in the sand and pretend as though we're in la la land and we're just, you know, we're out here in these, you know, the wilderness here by ourselves and it shouldn't affect us. And it's, it's been, I mean, in a lot of ways, like I did that same thing. I mean, absolutely. The Enorma cast did that same thing of like, okay, well I can't keep pretending as though we're talking about something else. Right. You know, that's separate right. from all that. Um, and it was a reckoning here. It was a reckoning with, with a lot of media in climbing and a lot of companies in climbing of like, do you know what I mean though? It's like, I think we all wanted to be, you know, just these guys smoking weed and sure. in, yeah. in, in Yosemite because that was, you know, that was this counterculture of like, we don't want to be part of that. That's why we're here. Like, yeah. you know, the the whole like Yosemite culture began as you know, these hippies sort of running away from Vietnam in some ways. So, you know, so it was interesting that like we finally had this reckoning where it was forced and and you're talking about that with Georgia, like these these things that seem to be disparate, like there's there's this incident that happened, but we're climbing, like how are those things connected? Mm-hmm. Um, probably, yeah, I mean, left people in a fit. I know it did. I know it did. I mean, yeah. in under, the only thing is, I, I would say is understandably so. Like, they didn't know how to navigate these things, which is yeah. my joke about, like, these, you know, coming to you being like, you yeah. have dark skin, like, help us, you know? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. it's like, it's understandable to be like, we were just climbers a minute ago, and now we have this social responsibility that, that we didn't think we ever would, would have to have. I, mean, yeah, I don't know I think, if you have any comments on that. Yeah, you know, I think that that's a really that's a perspective that like you know we were climbers of five minutes ago and now a black man died and we have to be something else and that's like this perspective that a lot of white climbers like carried but like as a as a brown person I'm like okay so now we're talking about this thing that's like present in 
every black person's life, every brown person's life, every queer person's life, you know, whatever and whatever affinity space or marginalized community you might find yourself. We're like, hey, someone's listening now. And, you know, the issue with Ahmad was so parallel because he's recreating outdoors as we do when we're going out climbing. So it's like we're not going to not say something. This dude's like out outdoor in the outdoors recreating in a space that we're, you know, you know, how do we for the for the SCC or for any coalition um in another space like that like how do we respond but you know for me in that moment like I was okay and ready to be like yeah you know it makes the most sense for me to be this person doing this because you know I wasn't just gonna one leave everybody hanging but like two I recognize like okay well this is a moment where we could get shit done like get work done and like say what needs to be said and like there's gonna be a lot of and there has been ever since like a lot of you know backlash a lot mm-hmm, of support mm-hmm. from from all angles but like it it needed to be done and it started there yeah but see and, that, that, i gotta interrupt you because yeah you you were the right person not because of necessarily because you have brown skin or you are indigenous or you were the right person because you didn't tell them to fuck off i mean there's plenty of people that might have and yeah. so i mean i i just I want to, you know, send you sort of good energy because oh, thanks. <laughs> I mean, because honestly, like, and and that's been an issue. I think, you know, since then is like, um, yeah. just because I'm I look like this doesn't mean that I am your 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 go to person here, right? Um, right. But you had the energy, you had whatever it took to say okay, because I mean you had every you would have had every right you know to tell them to figure it out yourself you you know you created this like you've been part of this you've benefited from it i just want to like point that out that like just cuz you were um like i said because you were uh, looked a certain way didn't make you automatically um right. had to step up it wasn't your your cross to carry so to speak um yeah, and but I, but and it, but you you sounded like you were in the right position in the right, right point in your life I mean, it could have been three years before and you had your own things and you were like, I don't have the energy for this. Like, right. don't put this on me. Um, so, I mean, it just, it feels like a nexus of a lot of things that made you the right person. Yeah. And, you know, there were and definitely have been over the years and still are many situations where I and so many other black and brown and mm-hmm. other climbers find themselves in where they're like, damn I just hate operating in this white space because like all I want to do is tell everybody to fuck off right 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 right. for me anyway I've found myself digging into those spaces because I I believe that that you know what I'm talking about these these things they're they're global issues that um that need to be said and, and need to be done not because I necessarily i'm sitting here like oh well, we're gonna change something we can change but like no this shit needs to be heard because these are issues that are impacting everyone and like we kind of especially as climbers or like too as as human beings like we have these blinders on and we're super selfish and like we're kind of not thinking about the larger impact that we have on society or on our communities like for instance you know with this it's like how have we as white climbers been really um, unresponsive to the issues that the black and brown community face. I mean, case in point, like when those big walls were being established in Yosemite, like black people were like fighting for their lives. And so there's, you know, there's that real true historical like piece of things and then bring it to today where, you know, you have 
climber is kind of operating in this very like single lane, like blinders on, not really thinking about their impact and the way that they, uh, you know, exist when they're in outdoor spaces and like they're, and that, that is kind of the crux of like my, you know, indigenous environmental activism is like, you know, I'm trying to bring education and, and light and, and shine some semblance of light on like what is going on because it is a bigger issue that impacts everyone, all of us. And it impacts the indigenous community that is just constantly, I mean, for every route that's going up, every time you blink an eye, it's like just, the indigenous community is just constantly being erased and like every aspect and every angle. And so it's really kind of about like at its core, like let's have some conversation and try to like create some like uh, emotional intelligence or like, I don't know, like all these things that we kind of like lack as human beings when we're trying to navigate hard things that make us uncomfortable. So didn't you, and I say you in the, in the scope of all the people that are working in this space, Mm-hmm. In regards to climbing, I mean, don't you feel like you did change some things a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, again, I mean, I, I mentioned earlier, like the normal cast had this sort of reckoning of like, well, sure. what have you been doing and who's been on your podcast and did you notice this? And it's something I think about constantly. And I think about female representation on the podcast. I think about, um, you know, uh, whatever you want to call it, marginalized communities representation of the podcast. I think about it all the time now. Mm-hmm. And I didn't before that. It was just this goofy thing I was doing that, you know, whoever sat down in front of me, it was fine. I don't care who you are. Um, tell me some climbing stories. So, I mean, don't you think, and may- maybe you can be more specific to your own work uh, with the um, Red River Gorge. Like, did you change some stuff? I mean, like, when you look at like, we didn't have something before and we have it now, like, yeah, like things were implemented and things change. You know, I think as a person where I come from, it is like, so a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with a friend who, you know, kind of does some, some similar work, but, but out West. And we were talking, you know, she was like, this is just so great what we're doing. And I'm like, no, this, this is just, it's not great. This, this is what should be happening. Like, the fact that we're not talking about how these issues impact our, the black and brown people in our community, like why weren't we doing that before? And like, yes, things changed. And like, we have all these, like, you know, the coalition has these like amazing programs and we created this amazing digital resource to like address indigenous concerns. Cause no one wanted to listen to them before. It's this idea that like, Oh, we're doing something new and fresh and it's like amazing. And you're this like, incredible person and like maybe I don't give myself enough credit and that's fine but I think like for me I'm like no this this is stuff I would just be doing and shit that just needs to be done because it needs to be done it's like why do you work in social service isn't it amazing that you can help these people like get and I'm just speaking of like just as an example but like that you can help them get their high school equivalency diploma or like all these things that they deserve to have right like food and clothing and water it's like cool. Yeah. Like I can feel special for a moment that I changed something, but like, shouldn't this, I don't know, from my perspective anyway, I'm like, this should, this isn't special to me because it should be the case and it's not. And so like the change is like so frustrating because the change is emotional labor that we as people on the margins, like have to move in white spaces to change because 
there's this lack of information or knowledge or ignorance or whatever you want to call it uh, that we're constantly navigating it with the majority class that sort of navigates and dictates our society. Yeah, I mean, it's inertia and you guys are fighting against it. And I mean, doing what needs to be done sounds basic, but it's not. I mean, look at climate change. Like no one is doing what needs to be done. Um, we know it needs to be done. I mean, it's clear. So I, I, I mean, I, I think you should at least, you know, have that thought going to sleep at night. Like I am, I'm important. I'm special because I'm doing what needs to be done. And that's like, that's, that's sort of heroic in this, you know, effed up way. Sure. Um, I guess so, like, I mean, yeah. I understand like your, uh, your, your reluctance to give yourself props for doing the work that just you think, you know, when you get up in the morning that this is what I'm going to do today, but, um, sure. but it's important and, and, and you're making inroads and I think the landscape has changed. It's not, it's not where it needs to be, but the landscape around these issues within climbing anyway has, has absolutely changed. I mean, I'm, I'm watching it change. Um, I feel like there's almost like we need, we need another like rev up right now because, you know, we're sort of like still, you know, we're still running on the, the fumes of, of 2020 and, and what happened to make us reckon with that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, people like you out there doing these things, making people aware, um, looking at our values within climbing yeah. is, is still, you know, something that's moving the needle a little bit. Um, and yeah, I, I think, think of it like, uh, you know, I think Barack Obama mentioned this in terms of government, like we're, we're this massive ship that, you know, it, it, it takes a while for it to change. It, it, you, you move a little bit off course, but it takes 20 miles to, to turn the boat, um, so to speak. And um, anyway, yeah. I feel like it's being nudged by people like you. Yeah, I appreciate that. I think, you know, when I consider sort of like you mentioned climate change or like moving the needle, um, my brain as a, a person who's people have existed for generations and generations. And, you know, I think of like, how did we get here? Right. Like, let's ask the question of like, you know, or at least that's, you know, because I hear you like, right. Like, let's be proud of like, you know, that we're not where we were before. And, and I think that, that one thing is like a, a people as a society, we have a hard time of like reflecting on, you know, how did we get here? And so for me, like as an, as a person who considers himself an indigenous environmental activist, I'm, actively working against things that got us to this place and so it's like you know we're trying to address climate change and we're trying to think of new tools and new ways when the tools and the ways were disregarded and that's how we got here and so it's like this complex intersection of like trying to change what we can't hear with the people that exist on this planet now but also understanding that like the work that we're doing now is because like something got us here, right? Like something disturbed all of this and like put us in this place that we now have to take action on. And so, you know, just being like aware of all of that, I think sets up, sets myself in that, in that mindset of being like driven towards, I don't know if it drives me to do more because like, I don't view it as like, and I don't want to downplay the work that I do or make it seem insignificant or like, I don't love it or value it. But like, 
for me, I'm not going home at night thinking about the 75 or 80 people that I brought into the climbing gym who'd never experienced it before because of their race, gender, identity, or inability to financially be able to afford it. I'm thinking that like this is shit that needs to happen all the time. And why hasn't it happened up until that point? And so, yeah, you know, I mean, because it's, it's complex, right? <laughs> like, Brianna, it's complex. Give yourself a minute. Give yourself <laughs> that one minute where you think of those people, okay? Because <laughs> you can't, you know, I, anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, but I mean, I, I always think of like humans, they're, they're, we're like, the, we're like the, um, the roommate that, that won't do the dishes until it's moldy. Right. Like they're going to leave them there until it's like absolutely disgusting, uh, unfortunately. That, that's my, my uh, poor assessment of human beings, but that's, that's basically <laughs> how it works. But yeah. let, let me switch a little bit because yeah. you, me- you mentioned something and I just I wrote it down and then we had moved on, the Indigenous f- Field Guide. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also, let's talk about the climbing community. You came in as this person that was, I don't know, this is probably a simplistic assessment, but was you know, going to fix these problems w- within, you know, climbing at least there in Kentucky because it was inter- interfacing with marginalized communities was not happening. Um, what does that all look like to you and, and what kind of, you know, things you, you've been at it for a few years. Um, what does the cl- climbing community need to know or what have you implemented there that has worked and hasn't worked um, as far as, you know, these issues that we're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. I want to like, you know, kind of what you said about like, I think, you know, obviously the, in the most simplest terms, but like going in and like, a, you know, I think there was this idea that me being the person that I am would fix these issues, sure. right? Like, yeah, just um, get after it. Yeah, right. You're the one. <laughs> you got Do time. It. You got a kid. Whatever. Don't worry about it. Like, let's yeah. just fix this shit so we it's can get on of, with it. I do think, though, it's ironic because it's like the quintessential picture of like how we, you know, ask the one black or brown person that mm-hmm. we know to mm-hmm. do the hard shit for us. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, you know how it can be. So. You know, you mentioned the Indigenous Field Guide, and that has a huge intersection with like my growth as a climber, as well as, you know, how I navigated that through uh, these last few years with the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition. And, you know, you know what it kind of looked like after, you know, post 2020 as we built this program uh, in this region called Climb Late. And prior to this, you know, the Wait, Red River Gorge, uh, it's called Climb Late. Okay, cool. And we have this partnership with AL8, one Sasota company here mm-hmm. in Eastern Kentucky. And they were like our initial contributing financial sponsors to start this, uh, this program here back in 2020. And what we did is we took those funds and we started a free climbing event for like marginalized community members. So if you're black, brown, indigenous, queer, you know, adaptive climber, you can't financially afford it. Or maybe you're a new climber, you can come to these climbing events for free and they're hosted by the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition. And uh, so back in 2020, we started those just in two gyms here in Cincinnati. And now we host in Indianapolis and also in Lexington, Kentucky. And so we've grown uh, this program and we've, you know, each year we probably see like 300 people come out in a variety of different 
in the variety of different gyms that we offer this in. And so it's just exposed so many people who hadn't had access to climbing to the climbing gym. And over the course of the last year and a half, we've been able to uh, raise funds or, or receive donations to be able to bring some of those folks outside to climb in the Red River Gorge for the first time. And so, you know, we're creating opportunity for people who have never been able to experience the climbing gym or climbing in general, folks that have had these financial barriers or those that have just been, you know, completely underrepresented in the climbing industry can like now have this completely free opportunity to go do this thing. And it's just been really amazing to watch that grow over the last few years is like a really pivotal program and really impactful program that the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition um, does. And and that's not without any kind of like backlash or anything, because when you offer anything to a particular group of people, God forbid, a marginalized community group of people, um, you know, there's people that are like, why are you doing this? And why does this matter? And, you know, how does this fit into the mission and vision of, uh, you know, the coalition. And so we've had to navigate and address a lot of that along the way. Um, but so, so let know. me ask you that. I mean, I know why I think it matters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why does it matter that, that a kid from Cincinnati, you know, a black kid, uh, or indigenous kid that wouldn't have had this opportunity? Why, why is climbing the thing? Like, why is that important to you that these kids and what do you think they get from it? Or, I mean, kids, adults, whoever sure. hasn't had these opportunities. Well, I think like, what's a your level- pitch? Yeah, is, yeah. <laughs> is basically what I'm asking. I mean, I don't know what mine would be, but what's your pitch? I mean, like, there's a reason that we're all drawn to the sport of climbing. There's something we love about it. There's something we uh, feel uh, is continuously drawing us back to it. That's really special. I think in each of us, we, we know what that what that is, whether it's, you know, I mean, I mean, each person can identify what that is on their own. And so like, why shouldn't this kid from the middle of the city, this black kid who doesn't have the financial resources or has never like seen anybody look like him in the gym. So a place that he's he or she or they, you know, might not even feel comfortable entering into like, why shouldn't they have the opportunity to feel that and experience what I experienced? Not to mention like the financial or not financial, but uh, like the health benefits that come with, um, you know climbing mental health, physical health, and all of that. And just like, for me, in terms of like how I try to push for and create equity in these programs is to be able to give opportunity to people who've historically not had opportunity. And why? Because they were fighting for their lives when white people were climbing big walls. Like there is a, an exponential advantage and uh, like that white folks have had throughout all of history. And so like, Let's change the narrative and let's change who gets to control the story and how we operate in the space and who gets to dictate, you know, what it is. Uh, You know, those are just some aspects of it. Like, uh, you know, obviously lowering the financial barrier for folks that can't afford it and just allowing people the opportunity to experience something for free is special because this sport is special to all of us and um, in, in a variety of different ways. So every i i feel like any climber would be like well everyone should get to experience this like i don't know that i've ever met a climber that's like no this group of people shouldn't i mean like i'm sure they're (laughs) out there right but like you or me or whomever it's like (laughs) we would want everyone to be able to experience this so like what are those real barriers and and that's where the that's where the dilemmas arise where people are like ah that's not you know everyone has access the outdoors are free or whatever they like to say um so you know those are some components of it yeah, I mean, I've, I've, 
Yeah, I've thought about this obviously long and hard and 270 some episodes in of like what's special about climbing and i just recently had an email exchange um you know in in one of these things where as i'm writing some of these emails back and forth it's actually changing my thinking and and uh you know this this person was like i don't know if i need to introduce my kid to climbing like you know i have this very close friend whose son died in patagonia and you know, is that something I want to introduce my son to and, mm. uh, you know, somewhere down the line? And, and, you know, I started thinking about it and I didn't want to give some sort of glib response, but I was like, you know what, the benefits of climbing and, you know, not just thinking of myself, but, but all of my friends and, and people who I know who love it and live it and, and dedicate their time to it. And I'm not talking about dirtbags, but, you know, people who have otherwise families and careers and everything else but climbing is this huge thing it's like the benefits to me outweigh the risks that this person was talking about and you know my son is adhd and has autism and you know it's like if i don't know if he will but if he found something like climbing you know the outcomes for kids who have adhd with school and with self-medicating and you know what happens to them as young adults is is a little bit grim without something like that, something to pour themselves into physically and mentally and emotionally, which is something that climbing can can provide. I'm um, I'm certain of it because I've lived it. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, yeah, you take 20 people climbing and one or two of them connect with it. Um, I mean, that's a huge benefit because if those 20 people would have never seen it, it literally may, you know, it may put them on a path that is towards better health, better mental health, better physical health. And, you know, so I totally believe in it. And, and I hadn't, you know, again, once again, this sort of new movement, this idea of bringing these communities into climbing, it hadn't occurred to me that much before, um, 2020. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I said, it, it goes back to this important work that you guys are doing, um, to make me think about it and, and think about what the values of climbing are. But I mean, I don't know if you have a comment on that. You know, and and the other, you know, component of it as I as I look at it through the lens of my own in, indigeneity and like interacting with other natives and especially in this community in Cincinnati, um, is that strong connection to the land. And so climbing is like an avenue, you know, whether we get into the gym and then we go outside, but it's this opportunity to experience the land and the water and the earth and, and respect it in many ways. Um, you know, there's, I think that like climbers have a lot of respect for the rock cause it can like shut us down and it can like do a lot to us mentally being this like inanimate thing. But, you know, as an indigenous person, there's this, like I, I carry with me this like respect and honor to the land. And that's something that I also hope would shine through uh, in the work that I'm doing within the community that, that, you know, through, uh, you know, manifesting that mentality, like other people, they might understand the significance of the land and the water and like all these components that um, show up in, in our everyday life and they impact, you know, the health of our climate and all of these things. So, you know, ingraining some of those ideas in, into the community, uh, we as climbers can can uh, go out and go forth with a bit more reverence to like our the land and what we do to it and how we kind of um, take advantage of it um, and abuse it. And so, you know, there's all of these various uh, indigenous values that I try to like bring forth in the work 
that I'm doing too, especially as I try to like bring in native youth into the gym and like have them experience climbing for the first time. Like this is a beautiful opportunity for them to really understand um, what connection to the land feels like. And like we're moving on the rock and like feeling it and touching it. And it's, it can be really powerful. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because that, that was my sort of next line of questioning. Yeah. Again, going back to your podcast and listening to, you know, the issues that you guys are talking about and it, it's by and large native people talking mm-hmm. to each other. And that's what I was kind of like, I was like, uh, listening as, as, you know, sort of an outsider in a lot of ways, but like trying to kind of get a feel for what, you know, these indigenous cultural values that you want to, that you want to highlight are and where they intersect with climbing and, and also where they don't. And, um, so I, I, I was wondering if you had any sort of comment on that because, you know, you've got your foot in these both worlds, you find power or, or support or whatever you want to say from the climbing community and also from the indigenous community. Mm-hmm. Um, where do those things sort of cross and, and where do we have uh, work that we could do to, um, you know, to sort of help them intersect a little bit in a positive way? Yeah. Um, you mentioned the indigenous field guide and, you know, I think that the work that we did, on the field yeah, what guide. What is that? Yeah, like, yeah. Tell me about what it is. Sure. So, uh, <laughs> where do I in, get it? What is it? <laughs> so you can get it on the internet. Um, <laughs> where you believe can get it or all not. Things. <laughs> yes. Um, so, like I mentioned earlier, uh, my friend Sky, who's Kanaka Maoli, she and I, we built the Indigenous Field Guide. So, backtrack a little bit. Sky and I were both in the inaugural Scarpa Athlete Mentorship Initiative back in 2021. And so that's where we met. We were kind of like internet friends before that but uh you know we met more officially through this program and we had we were paired up with various athlete mentors and so i got the opportunity to work really closely with marina in a way and she became a really close friend of mine someone i knew kind of a little bit beforehand but just like you know, grew really close to and um, sky's mentor was kitty calhoun and so they're still pretty close today and like um and um, so those people had a, a impact on um, like us and our work within that athlete mentorship initiative. But at the end of the year, we had to like complete a, a capstone project. So some people went to Everest. So full circle Everest happened that year. And that was a big component because um, Eddie was in my athlete mentorship program, um, just a number of other really big things happened that year. But Sky and I, we built the Indigenous Field Guide. It started as a digital resource and just a pledge that uh, folks in the outdoor community, in the outdoor recreation community, whether you're a business, whether you're an individual, whether you work with an outdoor organization, could sign this pledge. And um, it lists these different commitments that people can make and sign off on um, around how they're going to recreate in the outdoors through uplifting and through an indigenous lens and so you've got things on there that fall really closely in line with things you're going to see like in leave no trace you know but then you're also going to see like you know i will keep a respectful distance from cultural artifacts or petroglyphs or various things that you're not going to necessarily see in like uh, leave no trace or other sort of ethics uh, that are out there in 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 the world um and then and then the last piece of the pledge the the thing we left for last was that i pledged that uh first ascents are not more important than um i can't remember what it says exactly because i don't have it right in front of me um but essentially that like first ascents and outdoor recreation is never going to be more important 
than than like the land and the people and like uplifting these values um and so it's a really like powerful of course i've forgotten it so i can't no no, no i'm but, reading it yeah. right now you're right yeah. it's yeah. i promise that exploration and first ascents are never more important than cultural resources yeah yeah thank you so you got it um, right you remember yeah, it's been a long day. Anyway, that's all right. <laughs> but yeah, you know that we kind of like wanted to end on something really powerful and something that you know, I mean, like climbers really got to like step back and be like, do I, do I care, like, or do I really care about exploration and first ascents and like you know the next frontier or whatever folks want to be? And so we're really challenging this idea of you know i understand why the north face came out with like all walls are meant for climbing right like right. that but like some uh, aren't yeah they're they're definitely not <laughs> and like we've learned a lot of i hate like like generalization <laughs> yeah platitude bullshit right, like right. that because like some aren't actually yeah but anyhow and, <laughs> and you know i'm such it, a contrarian i'm just like <laughs> yeah but what about this one is this one really you for don't climbing? need to climb this one anyway. yeah <laughs> And it just brings to light this issue and this attitude within outdoor recreation, but also with, you know, strongly within the climbing industry. And and we did not create the pledge or the field guide to be something specific to climbing, even though we are both climbers. We wanted it to to speak to all audiences of outdoor recreators. But, you know, as we looked at it through the lens of climbing, you know, I can't, I mean, more often than not, people, they really care about like first ascents and exploration and all of these things that can be and are incredibly impactful on the indigenous community. And, um, you know, we're not asking people and we had so many weird and like sometimes of like hitting my head against the wall conversations with people as we were trying to interact with large organizations and brands around signing on. And they're like, well, I can think of this one instance and I just have to share it because it's absolutely ridiculous, but I'm having this interaction and we have the, this one pledge. And again, I don't have it right in front of me. So thank you that you do, but um, you know, around geotagging and you know how uh, when you are exploring a new place for the first time and you're just like popping up the, the, the longitude latitude and like people can go out and see it. Like you're not really thinking about the impact of people on that land nor are you thinking about like oh am i like in a place i shouldn't be what sort of things am i considering like the native species and if anything's endangered and what um you know a lot of people accessing this place right now might like how that might impact this area and so i'm having these conversations and i'm like well you know what if we need help can we geotag then and i'm like are you for real asking me this question right now like yes you can get safety it's right. just like it's like can we just like look That's at like this like a straw man like a yeah, classic straw exactly, man exactly exactly 100% yeah and it's like why and and so it was like oh we have to wait to sign because we really have to just understand this i'm like do you or are you really just trying to like complicate <laughs> this for all of us because like and then it's like oh well there's the pledge point about staying on the trails and they're like well what if we're on the water i'm like what <laughs> you're on the water you're not on a trail right. like how it's just it's like can we just like pretend like we're smart competent human beings for like five minutes <laughs> and it's hilarious but like it's the, these conversations and it's you know people are so black and white they like can't comprehend something outside of their own understanding which is you know really the whole point of well, all of this <laughs> all right so so it's interesting because I'm, I'm looking at it right now mm -hmm. okay 
And it's funny because it's like uh, most of them, I mean, most of them are just like basic good behavior. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I will not stack rocks. Like, come on. Like, quit stacking the rocks. Um, I will leave the place the way I found it. You know, right, like, like who's going to argue with that? <laughs> I know. It's like, you know, it's, yeah. But you right. put a label on it, right? right? The thing is, is here in the, again in the in the edge of the Southwest. We're not in the Southwest, but we're we're on the edge of it. I mean, the tower collecting and the tower climbing has always been this issue in mm. Navajo land, mm. um, and and it's something that I actually I'll I'll admit I I I blew off. I broke. I I climbed Shiprock um, some years ago, and you know, going back to this this idea of changing the way we think about these things. Um, circa 2020 or, or the work that you've done mm -hmm. um, that you've been a part of it's like something that I think about all the time and I totally regret and you know I didn't need to do that and you know ship rock is within climbing lore is this storied thing that has you know all this this white you know climber version of its history yeah. um, and, it, and it's there as this also sacred thing and you know to this day I regret it and I, and I didn't need to do it it wasn't I don't think it was a particularly special ascent for me, but um, we went down and did it anyway because I had no, you know, it's like, whatever, like, who cares? I've heard people, if you talk to the right person, they'll they'll tell you you can do it or if you talk yeah, to the wrong person. Right. But, um, but it's interesting because, I, I mean, I've, I've changed my thinking about it and, and I wouldn't, to this day, I mean, at this time in my life, I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't, as much as I was also a tower collector, um, I wouldn't go and do a clandestine ascent of the totem pole mm -hmm. despite you know all these completely securitous you know arguments as to why it's okay it's like no it's you know they don't want us climbing on it we don't climb on it as far as i'm concerned and and so yeah it's it's interesting again going back to this idea of changing the way we think and mm -hmm. also but allowing us to change i don't know saying this out loud on this podcast you know i don't know i i won't get mean emails because I don't generally get them at this podcast, but <laughs> it, it could open myself up to to criticism because I did do it and right. um, I was a different person then. Right. And so it's like, we don't necessarily want to admit to it either, but um, you know, knowing that I absolutely would not go and climb that thing in my current state of mind around indigenous rights and, and cultural values um, represents at least a small, a bit of an evolution around thinking around these things. That was kind of the biggest, one of the biggest reasons behind like forming this pledge and sort of speaking into this space is that um, there are people who would sit here today and say like, I don't understand why that area is closed or why I can't climb that route. Like I, to them, um, that is more important. And so we're not, what, we're, what I'm not trying to say is like why values hold some like more significance than anybody else's, but it's trying to understand like the full breath and of like all of this, right? Like we, we know that like there's so much climbing that's out there. If we can't climb in this one spot, well, there's another phenomenal place that we could probably also climb in. So it's complicated uh, because, you know, I just don't know that we're ever uh, asking ourselves these questions enough. And you, and you were in that instance. And so I think like that's changed your perception. You're like, I would never do this again i understand things more like i've had more time to think with it and i'm willing to like acknowledge that 
you know, what the right thing and the wrong thing is and how to navigate all of that. But, you know, the challenge that I've faced in a lot of spaces working with various organizations and just interacting with people is that there are there are people out there, you know, they're, you know, here in the Red River Gorge, there's a section of the North Gorge, a wall called Military Wall. It's closed off because of cultural artifacts. It's a, a historical place now. And there's still people popping off. Like, when can I climb there again? I'm like, you can't. You can't climb there. You're not going to climb there. And they just don't, uh, they don't understand. I wouldn't say that they wouldn't uh, understand if they had the information, but, you know, some people still don't. So I don't know. There's a lot of self-reflection that needs to happen in all of that. And it's like bigger than climbing. It's about like who we are as people because, you know, it's not just, you know, how we respect another group of people and their wishes, but like, how do we do that in all aspects of life? And like, really just understand that certain things impact other people bigger or broader or deeper than others and like that can be okay and it's fine to be comfortable and like or uncomfortable and admit like you chris like did something and now you regret it and like okay so you made a mistake and like we talk about it and we grow into like hopefully better people yeah i mean it it would be easy for someone to be like yeah well you're you're good because you did it and now you can pretend to regret it because you (laughs) You went and climbed it like you're not like me who hasn't has never climbed it. So, I mean, it's it's a complicated thing. And like, um, you know, I was thinking about, you know, you were saying this military wall was closed and and uh, yeah, like a route, like one one route or something. Yeah. yeah and that's understandable. But, you know, it's like talking about um, thinking about Australia and, you know, there's been this huge closure in the in the Grampians. And mm. and so it's like you you, you know, and climbers are like, well, wait a minute close the places that have these these you know these cultural artifacts but you you don't necessarily need to blanket close the entire thing and you know it's kind of it's kind of becomes this like murky place where like well i don't want to like be the guy who's who's you know pretending as though indigenous in this case um um the aboriginals artifacts aren't, aren't important but at the same time i I also want, you know, some sort of like coherent compromise or coherent policy around like why these things are closed. And do you know what I mean? Like it's hard to tread into this this realm without feeling as though um, you know, you're you're being insensitive. Mm. But at the same time if the government is using it as sort of an excuse to to, you know, shut down resources they can't manage, which mm. I think is what's going on in a lot of parts of Victoria. You know, it's like, well, we close it because we can't, we actually can't deal with it. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm. you, you want to be sensitive, but there, there. I, I just, I just want to give like leeway to those people who are like, well, wait a second, how come you know the artifacts over there and a mile away this cliff is closed, sort of thing. Yeah, I think um, you know, there's a couple things that I, th- I think about. Of course, I could, you know, probably go down a, a rabbit hole. It's sort of a of devil's advocate yeah. kind of kind of question. Yeah, I mean, I think like. You know, I probably, like I said, could go down like quite a long rabbit hole of like why um, it's so important that like boundaries and things are broad boundaries are set around like these sorts of things and like what this land is, because we're not just it's not just this one one artifact. We're talking about like a huge swath of land that is very sacred to many people and like why why we shouldn't be climbing in that area. I think the other component of it is like what what context are we looking at it through like what lens are we looking at it through and how have climbers how how would climbers behave like you block off this little spot like you know 
can we uh, honestly say that like the rest of the area around it isn't going to be, you know, damaged and, you know, it's complicated. It's really complicated. And, um, you know, I have empathy for and can hold space for like people's frustrations. I think it just like needs to be a larger conversation where we understand the significance of and we can like check our behavior because if we could prove like <laughs> prove who are we proving it to? I don't know. But like <laughs> if we could just like, you know, if, if what we knew was that our actions weren't having these like incredible uh, consequences on the land, then like we could say, yeah, we as xyz outdoor recreator climber whomever we don't have a huge impact we're a great influence and like we do good things but like what what we also know is like we've you know trample the land and like you know we don't take care of things and we're selfish and you know it's this tricky middle section of like you know can we honestly say that we would behave in good faith i don't know because like we kind of behave shitty in other instances so it's tricky well the we the we is so big and Mm -hmm. uncontrollable too right you know Um, you know, hence, uh, bolting Mm. right next to petroglyphs. Like we as a community understand that that is the wrong thing to do, but there was still this incident that happened because we, we don't, you know, it's like, we're not the Borg, like we can't control everybody all the time. So it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, erring on the side of respect seems to be sort of the, the, you know, kind of rule, I guess, or the golden rule. Yeah. I would hope that like, aside from it, you know, being a rule, like we could just like, you know, we actually felt that too. Right. Like we actually like at our core, we're like, yeah, no, I actually care about what the right thing is, what the best thing is. And it's kind of like hard to, I don't know, really put it into perspective if there's not some kind of thing that's impacting us, right. Like individually or, you know, so like my, approach and it's not and a very actual and factual approach behind like a lot of my work in regards to environmental conservation or you know activism is like this just huge impact that it has on the land that we're all on and the climate and the planet this place that we all exist on and that our actions are you know they have uh, consequences and we can see them every day. And so we try to put it into perspective that people can understand, um, really with this and with anything in my life of like trying, you know, when I'm trying to address my board with the coalition or like white people climbing in Kentucky, like I'm trying to like put it in a, I know that people don't understand my perspective, right? I'm the only indigenous woman that sits on this board that probably half these people even know. And like, so I know that they don't understand my perspective, but I try to like approach conversation with, with the lens of like hoping that I can get them to understand like why it matters to me, why there's a bigger impact and like, view something outside of their their own lens or something that they've like so long believed for the their entire life yeah and they've literally asked you to do that (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) so i mean maybe they as a collective and there's some people that that weren't on board but um but it's interesting to to ask someone to to you know enlighten us but then when you're enlightening makes them uncomfortable that they're, they're like okay well yeah enough enlightening but i mean i i'm characterizing i'm sure i'm sure they're very open to what you have to say 
But let's finish with, um, you know, we, we've, we haven't talked about you personally as a climber yeah. that much in this thing. You're a mom. You said, I think your son is seven. Is that what you said? Yeah, he's seven. Yeah, I have a seven-year-old too, um, so I can commiserate. Um, <laughs> Life is crazy and, uh, all the time. Yeah, so what does climbing look like to you? You know, we've sort of set up this thing where it's, it's sort of fraught with this weight but I hope that it's not. I hope that uh, climbing is still an escape for you and, and something that you enjoy doing for its own sake. Yeah, I think, you know, this year I really went through like some phases of kind of learning to love climbing again. You know, I was I, I made a career transition and uh, the weight of just the climbing industry as a whole was a lot on me uh, earlier this year. And so like I had to... No, you have to hold up the whole thing. <laughs> Is that cool with you? <laughs> Do it all. Um, so I had to like step back and like really kind of like find my love of climbing again and, and make it not my entire identity. And through that, you know, this year I've, you know, last year I was like working on a really hard project down in um, Kentucky. Eastern Kentucky does, believe it or not, have bouldering. Um, it's not just the Red River Gorge. And so there's this really dope place called Foxtown where there's a lot of like unestablished boulders there and a place that um, I've been trying really hard at. And so, you know, I was working on this one project there at the latter half of the year. Um, but like not also not realizing that I was like in a really deep depressive state. And so like, I had to like work through all of that, uh, into this year and realizing that, uh, a lot of that was tied to like my current place of employment and like my, my identity and like who I was in climbing and all of that. And so, you know, I was able to like sever that uh, employment and kind of move into this new position with the Urban Native Collective and um, find this love of climbing again and try hard again and like rekindle this flame that I had like early I'd say prior to last year of just like climbing really hard and um, and yeah so you know I like I said I have a kid and so that means like going to the gym a lot because we also live in Ohio and it's like summertime. And so the, the, the conditions, the condies aren't great right now. The Red River Gorge is a, um, or anywhere in Eastern Kentucky that you can climb is like a rainforest in the summertime. So bouldering means like waiting towards the very end of the year. And so I've got, you know, some projects in mind and some goals regarding climbing and, um, have some cool climbing festivals coming up and, um, really excited to like get back outside on the rock and and just um feeling a bit more free from those mental barriers um going back to my project and and hopefully sending it and hopefully you know getting to go out west a little bit and climb again uh as a different person and um i'm kind of picking and choosing where i show up in the climbing space picking occasional festivals or or a podcast <laughs> to be on you know here and there because um, I don't want it to feel so roped up into like who, what my identity is, even though it's like a really important part of it. And I know it makes me who I am. So I can't kind of, I can't really like disregard it as this really big piece of who I am as a person, but just like, it's been like this whole journey, right. Since like 2018 of like figuring out who I am in this space, who am I? Uh, Cause I built a lot on I think the perceptions of other people for a long time my whole life probably so like figuring out who I am in this climbing space and um and yeah that's fun adventures on the horizon that's for sure with my family <laughs> 
All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Brianna for sitting down. She has a powerful voice. Tugong, charge it. And I want to issue an apology to the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition. I jokingly depicted them as a bunch of fuddy-duddies, you know, couldn't find their ass with two hands, that kind of thing. I am joking. They are a very capable organization. If you climb in that area, you should contribute. So yeah, it was more of an illustration of how organizations like that got caught a bit flat-footed in the moment. So cheers, RRGCC. Cheers to you. Keep up the good work. And again, contribute if you climb in the red. They can be found at rrgcc.org. But back to Brianna. You can find her on Instagram, Dirtbag Mama, or you can find her work and her podcast at the Urban Native Collective. That's urbannativecollective.org. Okay. Once again, my condolences to the friends and family of Aaron Livingston. My condolences to anyone who's lost a loved one to climbing. It ain't easy, but climbing gives a lot too. So please check your knots, not just the real ones, but those metaphorical knots that bind us together. You gotta look mean or people won't respect you. White people will run all over you if you don't look mean. You gotta look like a warrior. You gotta look like you just came back from killing a buffalo. But our tribe never hunted buffalo. We were fishermen. What? You wanna look like you just came back from catching a fish? The same dances with salmon, you know? (laughs) 